This podcast is not a source of legal advice. No two legal cases are the same. Contact an attorney if you require legal assistance. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast and part two in this series. You just spoke a minute ago about social justice and you teach a course uh, in social justice. Talk to me a little bit about the different social justice issues associated with cannabis. Sure. So the background is, and the reason why people even talk about social justice and cannabis, is that if you look at the history of prohibition, a lot of it is steeped in in racism, frankly. And so back in uh, about 1900, there was a large influx of Mexican-Americans that were coming in uh, because of, of the war and because of political instability. And when they came, they brought the tradition of smoking cannabis, because in the U.S. that really had not been the, the case before. Uh, before that, we actually had uh, compounders who were like early early uh, pharmacists, and they would actually make cannabis tinctures. And the tinctures are the drops or liquids that you put under your tongue. So back between about 1850 and roughly 1937-1941, when cannabis was essentially banned because of a very high tax, you could actually go to your compounder and you could get a cannabis tincture. So it was perfectly legal. It was used for many different conditions. Big pharmaceuticals like uh, Brother Smith, Tilden, Eli Lilly, they all made cannabis tincture. I never knew that. Yeah, I never yeah, knew that. Yeah, so it was pretty interesting that, you know, our, our, our grandparents, great-grandparents were using cannabis all this time. And then as soon as Mexicans came across the border and were smoking, all of a sudden a, a big campaign led by a bureaucrat, Harry Anslinger, who handled alcohol prohibition too, uh, he really targeted people of color. So Mexican-Americans and also, quote, jazz musicians, a.k.a. blacks. And uh, he started to connect uh, cannabis with things like being a gateway drug, making people crazy, um, it, just making people dangerous. And so he got people to buy into that, and eventually uh, cannabis was, was banned that way. Yeah, they had After all that propaganda. Was, I do remember that, the, uh, oh, yeah, the propaganda whole, pieces. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, a whole machine. And if you read some of the um, early headlines, it's just crazy about some of the stories that they'll report. So at, at any rate, after that happened, we also found that a lot of people of color were getting arrested at much greater rates than uh, than whites, even though use was similar. So ACLU did a, a very seminal study, and it showed that 3.64 um, times uh, brown and black people were getting arrested as whites. So it definitely was unequal treatment. And when that happened, of course, you had families that were broken up, communities broken up, people ending up in prison. And so it's a very long, very long preface to say that's why we're concerned about social justice, because we want to give people who were harmed by the war on drugs, who were largely uh, brown and black people, a stake in the cannabis industry if that's what they want. So it's trying to make reparations for what those families have gone through. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was uh, part and parcel of Nixon's war on crime that led it to be scheduled as a Schedule One. Uh, exactly along with heroin, right? right? Um, yeah, exactly right. So yes, it, it, cannabis is still considered a Schedule One drug, along with uh, heroin, LSD, peyote, and it's defined as uh, being very addictive and having no, no. medical use, right? No, and except it, the medical use, which 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 we know is just absolutely false and ridiculous. But yes, here we are stuck with a uh, Schedule One uh, designation, right? But how do we navigate that stigma behind cannabis since it's still classified federally as a Schedule One controlled dangerous substance? Yeah, that's, that's the that's issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Part of it is the normalization, 
Part of it is making sure that we have a safe industry and that people have the facts around uh, cannabis. But I do think that some of the things that will change people's hearts and minds is when they see the medical applications. So for example, in a lot of states, the, their medical cannabis program started because a parent stood up for their child and the child had uh, epilepsy in many cases. And so the parent wanted to give them cannabis instead of all the regular uh, pharma that they were on. So you do have those kind of cases where people have stood up for their children. You also have um, cannabis uh, patients and their, their loved ones who also stand up for them because cannabis can be very effective, again, with pain relief, helping nausea, stimulating appetite. Uh, and then also you have CBD, CBD, which has been, which does not get people high. And it's been very popular, especially in an older population where people have uh, aches and pains, muscles, joints, arthritis, things like that. So I think that when people see how effective cannabis can be as a medicine, that at least starts the conversation and starts to change a few hearts and minds. And then when they come to understand the prohibitionist history, then we see how important it is to try to include people who have been hurt on the, by the war on drugs. Yeah, I always think it's so important, really in any topic, but this topic specifically to understand about the history, uh, as you've described it, behind uh, how it how it be became illegal and, and, and the path now back towards legalization and why those social issues, you know, can't, can't be um, understated or, or over-discussed, in my opinion. Yeah, they, they are so connected. And if you even look at the way that the United States started in legalizing the medical cannabis market, it was in California. And it was because of some brave people like uh, Dennis Perone and uh, um, Brownie Mary, who actually made infused brownies and gave it to HIV and AIDS patients. So when, when HIV and AIDS really started to flaring up in the, um, in the late 80s and then uh, trickling into the 90s, you did have a lot of people who knew cannabis would help on a medical uh, basis. And so they are the ones that really started trying to support the medical cannabis program. And in 1996, California was the first state to legalize medical cannabis. And that really started everything. But again, it was because of health and because of um, HIV AIDS. Right. And, you know, obviously alcohol is legal, um, but there are so many dangers uh, associated with uh, alcohol use and abuse. Um, you know, you you don't ever really hear of anyone overdosing on on marijuana or cannabis. Um, but there are some certain dangers, I guess, that would have to be at least acknowledged in terms of, you know, using it and driving. When you teach, do you do you teach about the benefits and the harms of usage? I, I do. We, we have a section that's called uh, social issues. And so we do go through, through things like the argue, argument about gateway drug. We do talk about underage use. We talk about driving well impaired. Uh, but, but that also is kind of a complicated issue for a couple reasons. One is that we've relied pretty much on, uh, on blood or urine tests with uh, cannabis. And if you're a regular smoker or user of cannabis, you can actually stop right now and in 30 days, you could be tested, and there's a good chance you would still test positive because right. your body just stores it for that long, even though you would absolutely not be impaired at all. So right. testing for impairment is definitely going to be something we'll see. And at some point, we might have something like a um, cannabis breathalyzer. But the tricky part about cannabis is the only way you know somebody's actively impaired is you pretty much have to scan their brain. You can't you can't really get it from um, other other sources. So you can imagine at some point they will have some sort of app that can do that. 
but that that is a huge challenge. And yeah. then also, and, and also people have such different tolerance levels too. I, I know an MS patient in Colorado, and she regularly will take well over 200 milligrams of um, of cannabis uh, at a sitting and a couple times per day. Whereas for most of us, that would be that would be a dose that would uh, probably make you fall asleep or definitely would have some uncomfortable effects. But she, but she is um, so attuned to it, she gets along just fine. So again, trying to set up a threshold of what somebody would be uh, to be impaired while they're driving, that's also a very difficult question. Right. That's something that I'm interested in exploring with, uh, with, with someone, either a toxicologist or a pharmacologist. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert. My general understanding is that you can test for the active metabolite but you, you know you may be able, be able to correct me if i'm wrong you know there is obviously uh and i don't want to get too far afield but there is a, a case pending right now state versus olonowski which is uh challenging drug recognition experts in new jersey and i think that's going to be a huge issue for prosecutors and defense attorneys dealing with individuals who are accused of driving uh, under the influence, uh, particularly if there's an accident involving death or serious bodily injury, um, yes. being able to establish whether or not that person was impaired is a huge, I think, issue going forward. Um, and mm -hmm. I have seen different uh, apps that people are developing or breathalyzers. I mean, are you able to speak to that at all? I mean, that's something that I was really searching to, to talk to somebody specifically about, but I don't know if you can comment on that or not. Well, the Olenowski case, first of all, is is crucial. And uh, Judge Lisa, who's going through, I'm sure, hundreds of pages of documents, uh, has a very important decision that will be coming down. And that will not only affect uh, DREs for police departments, but also for employers. At some point, there is supposed to be a program for what they call uh, WIRE experts, W-I-R-E, uh, Workplace Impairment Recognition Experts. And so apparently, if I'm running a business and I think someone's impaired, I can call in or I might have on staff if I have a big enough company, a wire, a wire expert to um, tell me whether that person actually is actively impaired on the job. So you can imagine that if the Olenowski case gets decided in a certain way, what do you do about the wire experts now? Because they depend on much of the same protocol uh, that, right. uh, that, the DR, that the DREs do. So I once, imagine once they'll again, be challenged. As, yeah. Be, I imagine yeah, somebody will challenge them. Lost. Uh, and, and there are a couple of companies that are trying to develop breathalyzers. There's a company in um, San Francisco called Hound Technology, and they do have a big waiting list on people who want to try their product. Uh, What's the name of that again? Hound? It's called Hound, H-O-U-N-D. Oh, Hound. Like, okay. like a dog. Got it. Yeah, Hound Technologies. And But the issue with that, again, is it can detect whether you whether you've actively consumed cannabis. It'll, it has like a bell-shaped curve that will tell you where you are uh, from zero to about three hours. So it'll tell you if you're, if, you've, if you're actively, quote, impaired. But then the issue, again, is the level of impairment. So the state of Colorado and Oregon both have um, levels of impairment. But again, each person's physiology is so different that someone may well be impaired at a certain level and someone else will be totally fine. Right. Well, that's the same with alcohol, though, right? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, if you drink alcohol, at some point you're 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 going to be impaired, right? Uh, or partially impaired. But but again, for some people, with the huge tolerance and everything else, um, 
I, I would not call them impaired. Right, but, but they're cannabis. but they're BAC, I and mean, they could be walking around with a BAC yes. if it's over the legal limit. Yeah, so there's just uh, so many issues there. I think that's something that's going to have to be navigated, and and hopefully a decision um, as to how to measure that. I mean, we don't want people driving around impaired. Right, um, and and I do think in the short term, one smart thing would be for places like consumption lounges. So consumption lounges can be developed in conjunction with a dispensary. If you have a dispensary license, you can apply for a consumption lounge license. And what that is, a consumption lounge either, either has to be located uh, in the same building, but with a separate door or on the same grounds. So you might walk outside and walk 25 feet to the lounge. And the lounge has to be a separate building with, um, with ventilation. It can't be visible from the street. And that's where people can consume product. It so can or cannot be visible from the street. Cannot. Can cannot be visible from the from the so street. So is this I mean, like uh, the, the the places the in Amsterdam type things? Uh, yes, I, I would call it like an Amsterdam experience, but but more discreet. Mm -hmm. I would say because you can walk by the windows in Amsterdam and look right in and see people um, having mm -hmm. their little space cakes or or smoking their cannabis. Right. But you could you would not do that in New Jersey. You would just see a building. And it may well have blacked out windows and that sort of thing. Um, but at any rate, so you can go in the dispensary, buy product, and then go into the um, consumption lounge and consume and then go on your way. I, I would think if I were going to put up a consumption lounge, I would absolutely make a deal with uh, Uber or something else or have a bus so that no one ever drove out of my establishment. Well, right. I mean, the, you can imagine the insurance on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the insurance and also the public perception, even mm -hmm. though we see people going to bars and restaurants every day and then getting in their cars and driving off. But we, we have a ways to go before we have any kind of, kind of normalization to yeah. the degree that alcohol is. Yeah. Um, to date, what is your uh, thoughts or what are your thoughts on um, how the state is doing on, um, you know, prioritizing the application process, um, promoting, you know, inclusion of diverse populations, etc. Or is there anyone that you could recommend that I speak to about that? Uh, for the most part, I'm very happy with the progress they've, they've made. The New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission is the body I'm speaking about. Uh, the one thing that I do like to point out to people is that when the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission started their mission of setting up a safe and equitable business, they also inherited such a small medical cannabis market. I mean, even today, we only have 16 dispensaries that are open for adult use. Mm -hmm. um, and a total of, uh, I think it's 23, for all the medical patients. And we have a population of 9.2 million. So we started from such a small uh, baseline of cannabis businesses that it's taken us a while, but I can understand why, to get where we are now, where the majority of applicants that are applying are social equity applicants. We have, um, and they're being processed. There's about a, over a thousand that have been submitted. So I, I love to see that kind of progress. I'm glad to see people are pursuing micro licenses too. So we have small operators. Um, but again, the way the New Jersey market was set up, we were set up pretty much with entirely by MSOs, multi-state operators, all the big cannabis businesses. So, so it looks like we kind of have an uh, oligopoly of, of cannabis businesses now. But my hope is that in about oh, nine months to a year when some of the first applicants get out there who are social equity applicants, that our landscape is going to look very different. And that's the part that I'm most excited about. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned. There is more to come.
If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast.